just about two weeks after the pandemic started, I was supposed to play a concert in New York with the last three Beethoven sonatas, and they asked me to play it from my living room. I didn't even have a decent microphone at that, at that point. On an iPhone, I recorded these sonatas. But, you know, they are the last three Beethoven's, some of the most profound and most mysterious utterances that I think humanity has produced. I don't know that I've ever felt more connected to the spiritual, whatever that means, than I was in those moments. Whatever God is, to me, it's, it's in these pieces. It really is. Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to What I've Learned. On this episode, Jonathan Beast on using music to answer spiritual questions. Jonathan is one of the most renowned pianists in the world. He's also considered one of the world's greatest interpreters of Beethoven. In 2011, he set out on a nine-year journey to record all 32 of Beethoven's piano sonatas. He says he expected this project to be the most fulfilling experience of his life, but it also uncovered anxieties about his relationship with music. And he explored that relationship in his amazing and beautiful new Audible original called Unquiet, My Life with Beethoven. Plus, he's managed to accomplish all that at the ripe age of 41. If you love classical music as much as I do, or even if you don't, you'll find this conversation incredibly rewarding and revealing. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like I'm bringing together my admiration for you, my love for Beethoven, and all the amazing time I spent uh, this weekend listening to your Audible original book, Unquiet, which was a fantastic combination of listening to you tell the story and listening to you play Beethoven sonatas. I absolutely love that. This is the only way to listen to Audible originals from now on for me. So we are going to get into a lot of specifics in a moment about Beethoven and your relationship with him. But what would you say is your biggest overall lesson about yourself and your life that you've learned over the past unprecedented pandemic year? Wow, that's hard to distill because there's so much. First of all, thank you and a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, you're, thank you for what you said about the book. It's very gratified to hear it. I, for years and years, would always preach the value for an artist or maybe for any person to slow down. But it was never advice that I followed myself. I would set a limit. I shouldn't play more than 70 concerts a year. And then there was always a reason to make it 75 and 80 and 90. And then I, I would say, well, if I'm going to play that many concerts, I don't have time to do anything else. And then there would be an offer to write something or to teach somewhere or to do something else. And it was irresistible. And once you're sort of on that treadmill, it's very hard to force yourself to get off it. The pandemic took that out of my hands. And all of a sudden, I practiced what I preached and I... I actually gave myself time to think and practice and then absorb what I had practiced. And I can't say it comes as a great surprise, but it completely changed my life. And it also happened at the very moment of a great disappointment, which was having to cancel your big tour to play Beethoven Sonatas, which you acknowledge in the book was truly painful. It was. I mean, I had spent 
10 years recording the sonatas. I had made the plans to play them in various cities around the world for also years. The classical music world is planned preposterously in advance. And I had sort of arranged my whole life to be leading up to that moment, the end of 2019 and the first half of 2020. And then, like everyone else, all of my plans just evaporated into thin air. So it was terribly disappointing, but it also coincided with this moment where I was finding the pressure of my life impossible to handle. And also perhaps some way to connect what happened and the complete uncertainty of life to what you consider the central question of Beethoven's greatness, which is the spiritual element. I must say, I absolutely loved that because, as you said, so often we separate our love for great music from our longing to answer the big questions about the universe and our place in it. But you find in Beethoven, and especially in Beethoven's sonatas, the intersection of the two. So tell us more about that. And when did you first start seeing this connection? We all, in our own way, long for some kind of understanding of our place in the universe and, and a sense of why we're here. And for me, I think... It's always been through music that I have experienced that. I was drawn to music from a very, very early age because I don't want to say it filled a void, but it did provide me with something which I didn't find elsewhere. Let's put it that way. And it's not that Beethoven is necessarily a greater composer than Mozart or Schubert or you know, whoever else is at the top of your personal list, but I think that his desire to connect to something larger than himself is more palpable than that of any other composer. I think the the urgency of that desire and the intensity of that desire is so palpable. And I think it's the reason that I've just been in a really kind of quite a literal way pulled to his music my whole life. You know, there's an incredibly moving letter that he wrote to his brothers when he was around 30 years old called the Heiligenstadt Testament because it was written in the town of Heiligenstadt, in which he, he's already at this point losing his hearing. And he writes to his brothers that he felt so humiliated by this that he was close to suicide, but that the need to express things was keeping him alive. And I think that need is imprinted in the music. And it's something which is actually so generous and so much larger than himself. That's the quality in his music, which makes him literally irresistible. But do you think there was something about losing his hearing, which inevitably kind of disconnects you from the external world and all the distractions that made his music even profounder and closer to something deeper and more spiritual? I think it certainly made it different than it otherwise would have been. It's interesting because we associate the, the spiritual Beethoven very much with the late works, but actually that element is very much present from the very beginning. What certainly is connected to his deafness is what I would call the modernity of his music, the sense of it being really beyond what anybody else was writing in the 1820s. It was so far removed from the language of the time. And I somehow think that's easier to do 
when you are no longer in contact with the sounds around you. Not, I, I don't just mean the music of his contemporary music. I, I mean even footsteps and church bells and the sounds of everyday life. I think that his insulation from that, tragic as it was, made it more possible for his imagination to roam free and uninhibited. I feel, Jonathan, as though Beethoven is the third person in this conversation. <laughs> which is the closest we're ever going to get to booking him on this podcast. (laughs) But I would love now to go back to you and the beginnings of your love for music and the piano. You started playing the piano when you were six. What was your family's spiritual life like? I mean, was faith part of your upbringing? Yeah, not really. First of all, My parents are musicians as well. Probably the single most significant thing that happened to me in my life was that my parents are musicians and that music was present in the house the whole time. And while you were asking the question, I was thinking of the story of a friend of mine who is a musician who's deeply in love with music, had a story a few years ago where he was visited by Jehovah's Witnesses who asked him if he had ever had an encounter with God. And his response was, yes, Schubert. (laughs) And I feel like that was very much the attitude in my family. Whatever God was, he could be found in these pieces. My family is Jewish culturally, as Jewish as it gets, but nobody in my family is practicing, really. So I would say spirituality was there. It was present. It was important, but it was not through an organized medium. I'm at least the second, if not third, or maybe even fourth generation of person in my family to find it through the medium of the great composers. And yet you say in your book that it seems out of fashion to talk about the spiritual element in music. (laughs) So even though your friend said that he found God in Schubert, it's kind of unusual, right? I think often music becomes a substitute for spirituality rather than another way to find spirituality. I know firsthand because I dated for a long time a music critic in London Mm -hmm. (laughs) and spent endless nights in concert halls and opera houses around the world. And uh, he was an atheist whose love for music was really a substitute for what millions of people find in faith, whether organized religion or some form of spirituality. So where are you in that continuum? You know, I'm not sure how different all of these things ultimately are, other than the fact that I don't pray in a church. I mean, that's a practical thing. But other than that, you know, I I have friends who are religious and a brother who for many years was a practicing mathematician And I have, of course, many, many friends who are musicians. And I think we're all just looking for meaning in different ways. And the window dressing is different, but I'm not really sure that the substance of what we do is different. I was interested when you were saying about how the separation of the music from the spiritual, and it, it occurs to me it's a little bit related to your previous question about the lessons of the pandemic, because being a performing musician, is it's complicated because it is a calling And it's a job. And normally, when we're not living in the time of COVID and you're touring all the time, there are constant deadlines and stresses and urgent needs and things you have to do and you have to be professional. And sometimes that can take you away from the spiritual aspect of it. It's harder to be in contact with the deepest elements of the music when 
you have to get on the plane to get to the rehearsal, to get to the concert, and you have to have eaten well and exercised <laughs> and had enough sleep. There's so many practical considerations. And I think sometimes there is a tension between the fact that it requires a lot of discipline and also something so much more than a job, which requires you to access your soul. Yes, you're right. I mean, in a way, you have to access your soul to perform from that deeper place. But also, a musical performance is not unlike an athletic performance. And I'd love to know what your own practices are, but you probably a little bit like Tom Brady have to make sure you've slept, <laughs> uh, that you ate whatever works for you, that you recovered from exertions, whatever your routine is. What is your routine? It's interesting. Uh, during the pandemic, where of course I've played very few concerts because there are very few concerts happening, but I have tried hard to let go of routine, which I used to have, which I think approached a sort of obsessive compulsive situation <laughs> where if I hadn't slept this much and also this many hours before the concert, and I basically don't eat before the concert because I don't like to feel full. My teacher, Leon Fleischer, used to say we are athletes of the small muscles. I mean, there isn't <laughs> certainly an athletic element to what we do. But I found that when I got too much into that, it was an impediment to letting go. And I find that that's actually been for me one of the lessons of the of the pandemic is that if I actually kind of accept the conditions of the day, you know, how I feel on that day, the piano I'm playing that day, which is always a different one, and usually it's not an ideal one, I leave myself more space to be in the moment. But no, you are, of course, right. If I have a concert, I try to take a nap in the afternoon so that whatever happened earlier in the day, I can clear my head completely. I usually don't eat for four or five hours beforehand because... I'd much rather be hungry than full when I play a concert. <laughs> so there are certain things that are traditions, but I'm trying in my old age to let go of some of them just a bit. And what about the night before? Is there a particular number of hours of sleep? Yes, there is a number of hours I try to get, which is eight. If Whether I get them is another <laughs> another matter. That's one thing which I really regret, is that I, who sometimes in a year across the Atlantic, 12, 14, 16 times, am very bad at jet lag. So I have never really learned how to negotiate that thing. And I can tell you, there is no panic, like knowing you have the concert the next day and looking at the clock and it's mm -hmm. one in the morning and then it's two in the morning and it's three in the morning. But that's, yeah, as a matter of general principle, yes, I do try to, to get a good eight hours the night before. Coming. Well, Jonathan, I have to send you our 12 steps for a good night's sleep and my ah. book on sleep and our sleep meditations. I'm going to arm you with an enormous amount of help to get the sleep you want so that when you start touring again, it's going to be easier. I will read that with the greatest of interest. Hold that thought, Jonathan. We'll be right back after this quick break. Sleep is the foundation of every aspect of our physical and our mental well-being. That's always true. But in extraordinary times of anxiety and stress, getting the sleep we need is more important than ever. Sleep is essential to both a strong immune system and to our mental resilience, the very things we need to navigate these uncertain times. That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. 
It's available for free for members and includes bedtime stories, meditations, and extended soundscapes from Nick Jonas, Sean, Diddy, Combs, Kiki Palmer, and more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite audible sleep experiences at the end of this podcast. Jonathan, you talk about musical performance being a little bit like an athletic performance and preparing yourself for um, the time you walk on stage. Other than how much sleep you gotten and whether you had eaten or not, are there any other thoughts that you need to deal with? I mean, are you like so many lesser humans prone to negative bias and imagining the worst or allowing your negative fantasies about the concert to take over? Absolutely. I mean, and that's in fact, to a great extent, why I wrote Unquiet. The subject other than Beethoven was how the thing that I love the most in the world can also become torture. And I have personal experience of performance, which in theory, right, should be the act of sharing my greatest passion with people, it turning into a kind of a nightmare. And I find that I have to do constant work, not just day of concert work, but constant work on my mindset to think of the audience as a partner that is sharing the music with me rather than an adversary, which is such an easy thing to do. But then when you think about it, really quite irrational. Who is this person who is paying money to come to the concert for the purposes of disliking it? (laughs) But I think something very human about, especially when you're exposing yourself so completely in the way that you do when you play a concert, of feeling threatened, and as you say, then imagining the worst. And for me, there were times in my life where it certainly became a cycle. The more it happens, the harder it is to stop it. It's a daily moment to moment, I would say, acceptance of the conditions all around me and um, not to try to wish things to be other than they are and not trying to will things to be other than they are. It's very inexact science, but it, it is unbelievable how much that work does affect my state of mind when I go to play for people. What you described is precisely what all of us had to learn during the pandemic, not wishing things to be different, not willing things to be different, patience, trust. Do you think that when you go back to your touring and performing life, you will be able to deal with those anxieties differently? I very much hope so. I had 39 years of pre-pandemic life and only one year of the pandemic, uh, which obviously most I'm grateful for. But I mean, just in terms of how long I had to form some bad habits, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because there are signs now, thank heavens, that touring life is starting slowly to come back. And as the challenge was accepting the anxiety and accepting the pandemic, I have to sort of also accept that some of the old habits will rear their ugly heads. I think that for me, the problem would start when I immediately become angry at myself or start to judge myself for going back to 
thinking negatively or to being worried, just acknowledging that those things will happen. They happen for very complicated reasons that I probably will never be able to understand. But just to acknowledge them, I think if I am able to do that, then the lessons will not simply evaporate. And I wonder whether you've ever practiced anything spiritual like prayer, something that during these times of anxiety that are exacerbated before a concert would help. Have you ever tried that? I mean, have you ever tried to bring into your life a kind of practical application of spirituality? I often meditated. I have not prayed in the sense of the prayer being directed at a you know particular deity. But again, I think the differences between these things are superficial. I think ultimately it's about being in contact with yourself and with something larger than yourself. And it does make an enormous difference. It's very difficult because I notice, you know, as soon as I meditate, my mind wandering, I really think sometimes it might be a hundred times a minute. It's remarkable. But I mean, again, learning to just notice it and not judge it and then come back to the breath as hard as it is, it's made a very big difference in my day-to-day life. It makes a difference in my sleep and it makes a difference in my state of mind if I do it shortly before walking on stage. So yeah, there has been a, a practical application. But again, I, I want to go back to saying that music and spirituality, I can't separate them. I think It was just about two weeks after the pandemic started. I was supposed to play a concert in New York with the last three Beethoven sonatas, and they asked me to play it from my living room. I didn't even have a decent microphone at that, at that point. On an iPhone, I recorded these sonatas. But, you know, they are the last three Beethoven's, some of the most profound and most mysterious utterances that I think humanity has produced. And I remember the feeling of making those recordings. I don't know that I have ever felt more connected to the spiritual, whatever that means, than I was in those moments. Whatever God is, to me, it's it's in these pieces. It really is. Sometimes you must wonder, is there anything you can say to people who have not been exposed to the Beethoven sonatas that would make them um, try it? Yeah, I think about this question a lot. There was a time in my life when I thought that, well, everybody knows Beethoven's music, he doesn't need any special preaching. But then I, I was doing an interview for the BBC and I was chatting with the woman who was going into the studio before me and she was a, a Russian scholar, a highly educated person. And she asked me what I was going to be talking about. And I said, Beethoven. And she said, what's Beethoven? Not even who, but what is Beethoven? And I then I realized this is not as universal a thing as I thought it was. I think it's very, very difficult because I'm sure that the depth of my attachment to Beethoven has to do with how early he came into my life. And therefore, my enormous wish, and this is one of the things I really want to be actively involved with in the next phase of my life, is making sure that everyone has access to music, music education, instrumental education from the earliest possible age. And it's it's a tricky question because I don't want to impose my loves or my culture on anyone, but I do want everyone to have access to it. And when you say music, you mean classical music here, because of course, contemporary music is everywhere. But you mean the power of classical music. I do. And I don't like to create any sort of hierarchy. I, I will say that for me, classical music has a unique power. It doesn't feel necessary to me that anyone else should agree. But again, I just would like classical music to be something that everyone comes
comes to know at a young enough age that they can decide for themselves if it has a great meaning to them too. And especially right now, as post-pandemic, we are all looking for something deeper to connect us to the universe, to find meaning in arbitrary things like being unable to see our friends or losing our loved ones uh, suddenly out of nowhere. Maybe music, even for those who don't have a spiritual belief, can be a connection to what is missing from our lives. That music absolutely does have that power for many people. I mean, there's something so mysterious about music. If you compare it, for example, to literature, the great writers can express really, truly profound things. But what's so interesting about music is that it can only do that. You can use your words to say, go get me a glass of water. You can't use music to say, go get me a glass of water. Music is this language which only says things which are profound and very intimate. That's something unique. Art also can, and painting can sometimes convey something so profound, but also, you know, we see in our images that are from our lives and from the world. So music has this not quite of the earth aspect to it. And I think that makes it very special and, and gives it a power which is treasurable. Yes, and ultimately spiritual, because anytime you try to describe God or spirituality, you're kind of lying because you can't capture it in words yeah. or in images. Music, as you said, the mysterious element of it is that mystical part of the deepest esoteric religions. I love the way you are presenting it because I've always felt that to have a great artist like you remind us of the spiritual power of this work is going to change many lives as well as give enormous joy to millions of people. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And I just want to end with just three very quick rapid fire questions. What's on your nightstand? It's so funny you asked that in the context of the conversation. I have, there are several things on my nightstand, including James Baldwin, which I'm in the middle of reading for the first time, but also a book called Why We Sleep. Oh, wow. I love that book. Okay, I'll send yeah. you The Sleep Revolution. You can add it to your sleep collection. Please. <laughs> Describe in one sentence your relationship to your phone. It's a more important question than it should be in my life. But it's very simple. My relationship to my phone is toxic. I love that. That's perfect because I would say 99.999% of the world could give the same answer if they were honest. And finally, leaving aside Beethoven's sonatas and indeed classical music in general, what song would you choose as the soundtrack to your life? Oh, I would choose Piaf, No Je Ne Regrette Rien. I love it. And do you live by it? I try. I don't always succeed, but I think it is a very, very good way to live. Beautiful. Jonathan, thank you so much. I absolutely loved that. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for Unquiet. And can't wait to hear you in a concert hall next time you play. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Before we wrap up, I'd like to leave you with a microstep inspired by my conversation with Jonathan about his struggle with negative self-judgments. 
This micro step uses habit stacking, which is when we create a new healthy habit by stacking it onto an existing habit. So what you do is just pick a moment in your daily routine, maybe it's when you're brushing your teeth or when you're getting dressed, and use that moment to repeat a positive affirmation to yourself. That will help you build a new habit that allows you to resist that negative inner voice. It won't turn you into a concert pianist, but it will help you be more confident in whatever tasks you're performing. Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next time on What I've Learned. People don't believe me when I tell them that when I have a hard time falling asleep, my go-to solution is Sean Didi Combs' sleep meditation. It's called Honor Yourself, and it's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible, to create sleep experiences that will deliver your best sleep during this difficult time. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here, Didi guides you through a deeply relaxing meditation that will allow you to say goodbye to the day and wake up refreshed and ready to take on the challenges of the next one. It's time to slow down and into a period of deep restorative rest. This is Diddy. I'll be guiding you through a meditation that will help you slow down and drift off into the peaceful, restorative sleep that you deserve. We're going to start by setting a vision for our time together. Before you start anything in this life, You want to have a vision of yourself experiencing that thing. And right here, right now, your vision is of you in a non-judging, effortless, calming state of sleep. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear the sleep track in its entirety... Go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight.